Hello again, especially to all our many guests today. Uh, just a quick reminder for us all, next week is everyone's favorite weekend, it's Daylight Savings. How about that? Coming up, yes, spring forward, favorite time of the year. So there you go. Uh, let's get into our time now in God's Word and our scripture reading is going to be on the screen to your left and to your right. These are from a selected group of Proverbs here. And here we go. Through wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. The tongue is the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man of many companions may come to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. If you do this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. That's God's word this morning. Now, as you can see, we are looking at the subject of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and what we have found is this, that while wisdom is not less than rules, wisdom is not less than God's commandments, wisdom is not less than morality, Wisdom is certainly a whole lot more. Wisdom is knowing what to do in the vast majority of situations in your life where the moral rules may not obviously apply. In the last three weeks, we've been looking at and exploring the connections between wisdom and our interpersonal relationships. But this morning, I'd like to pull back and do something a bit different and look at our corporate lives here. Look at our corporate relationships here at Mosaic Church and just ask, what kind of wisdom is it going to take to do this mosaic thing well? What kind of understanding, to use Proverbs' words, what kind of understanding is it going to take? How can we do multi-generational, multicultural church well? Well, to answer that, let's open up Proverbs 24.3. It says, by wisdom a house is built and through understanding it is established. Now you may know that the word house throughout the Bible is used in a lot of different ways. It certainly means, of course, to your dwelling place, the place where you live, but it also means more than that. It's alternately used to refer to a person's family line, right, to the house of Saul or the house of David. It's used to refer and describe the, the temple in the Old Testament that was called what? The, the house of God. And then when you get over to the New Testament, it's used to describe one thing in particular, God's church. The Bible calls us God's household of faith. And so now if you're, if you're, if you're just joining us here or, or you're new this morning, right about now you're probably thinking, man, what is all this going to have to do with me, right? Well, you know, but hang on because you actually couldn't have picked a better Sunday to be here. 
because you're going to come face to face, get a good look at who we are and what we're trying to do in, in, in many ways, which is because of the second thing that you probably already thought if you knew, which is there are a lot of different kind of looking people in here. And yes, you are right. You're correct. There are. So really, again, this has everything to do with everyone. That's what all that was all about. Okay, so let's go and ask again, what do we need to understand in order to build this house well? Well, let me give you three incredible life-changing metaphors that actually the book of Proverbs gives all of us. And here they are. Number one, it says to find the lips, find a friend, and find food. Or we need a certain kind of words, find a certain kind of people, and get a certain kind of of help. Number one, here we go. Find the lips. Of course, this metaphor comes from a famous and mostly misunderstood proverb, twenty four twenty six, which says this, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. All right. Now, right away, what you have to just note when you read through Proverbs is just the sheer number of times that the Proverbs talk about speech and about words and how you use them. And as a matter of fact, after the subject of wisdom itself, the book of Proverbs talks more about speech and and your words than it does any other subject. What's this trying to show us? Well, it's trying to show you that not only do your words have power, But how you use your words can make or break your life. And how you use your words will certainly make or break a church. Therefore, let's ask, how can we handle them? What are we supposed to do with our words, especially in this local church setting? Well, let's go back to that verse we just looked at, which is not only, I believe, the summation of the teaching of the book of Proverbs when it comes to your words, but also this verse gives us a great view. It's got power in it to help us do well at multicultural, multi-generational church. And let me try to show you what I mean here. Again, the verse says, an honest answer is like a what? A kiss on the lips. Yeah, every single person gets real excited about this verse, but it may mean something different than what you're used to. But this shows you here two things, that you and I, that we're supposed to speak your words well and aim your words true. We handle our words well by speaking them well and aiming them true. Let's break it down. Look at the first part. It says an honest answer. An honest answer. Of course, this is the easy part of the verse. This shows us how we should speak our words and how should we speak. Well, of course, honestly, it says. And this is the the Hebrew word for straight, with uprightness, with integrity. See, by contrast, crooked words, right? They deceive or they're used to accuse or crooked words. They, they hurt or they wound. But no, we're supposed to speak words that are upright, that they're, they're straight, they're good, they're true, they're spoken at the right time and from the right motive. Do you do this? Do you do this? Is this how you use your words? We're supposed to speak them well. But look at this, because our words aren't just supposed to be spoken. This is, the, this is the key here. They're also supposed to be aimed. They're supposed to be aimed. Look at this. It says that honest words are like a kiss on the lips. Oh, this is showing us, again, there ought to be an aim to our words. We're aiming for something. What? The lips of another person. What in the world does this mean? Hmm? Well, this is the only time in all the Bible that a kiss on the lips is mentioned 
So you would think it means something special, and it does. But the meaning can elude us a bit because of our cultural moment and bias. So let's go a little deeper here. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who lived not long after the book of Proverbs was written, he said this about what a kiss on the lips meant in ancient culture. And here's what he said. He said, quote, when one man meets another, it is easy to see if they are equals. For then, without speaking, they kiss on the lips. If there is a small difference in rank between the two men, it is the cheek that is kissed. If it is a great difference in rank between men, the humbler bows and kneels before the other. Oh, did you catch that? I mean, that's a powerful thought here. See, what this proverb is telling you is that good words, true words, the best words are like a kiss on the lips. The best words are aimed, hear this, at showing another person you value them as much as you value yourself, see? See, some words, crooked words are used in creating differences in class or importance or rank between people, but the best words are aimed at eliminating differences in rank and importance and bringing them together. See, the best words are a kiss where? Not on the hand, right? Not even on the cheek, but on the lips. They show another person you value them as much as you value yourself. Now, how can we do that here in this kind of church? How can we show another person, other people, that we value them, you value them, as much as you value yourself with your words and your speech? Well, let me just offer one strategy for doing this, and here it is. One strategy for handling our speech well. Learn to speak the heart language of the people around you. Learn to speak the heart language of the people around you. Here's what I mean. Uh, I've got a lifelong friend and really ministry partner. His name was Matt Rash, a former college roommate. He helped lead my wife to Christ. And uh, we partnered with him because Matt has gone over to Marseille, France. Matt has planted a church there. It's amazing. We'll actually have a couple of missionaries from his church visiting us uh, later in the month. Uh, But do you know, when he went to France, what was the first thing that he did? Well, that when he got to France, he didn't go to just Marseille, the place where he believed God had called him to go. He actually went to a smaller town called Albertville, where he learned French and went to language school for a year. Now, actually, he didn't finish his year in school because if you know Matt, he's got a hard time just sitting through stuff. Uh, but he's a classic church planner, right? But he went to learn and got to learn conversational French. And he told me it was the best investment he had ever made in his ministry life. And here's why. He said, Morgan, when I meet French people, when I sit down for a coffee with them, many of them speak English, and that's great, and we can have a nice chat. But the moment that I want to go deeper... The moment I want to connect with their heart to speak truth and God's grace into their heart, I have to speak French with them. He said, any time there a person has ever become a Christian, it's when I've talked with them, I've prayed with them in French. He said, you know, they can speak French, excuse me, English with their minds, but they speak and pray French in and with their hearts. He said, to be effective there, I had to learn the heart language of the people I was sent to. He said, I had to meet them where they were, not just where I was. And so what, what had Matt done, right? It's a great thought. In learning, here it is, in learning the heart language of the people that God had called him to walk with, Matt had found their lips. He found their lips. Now, he'll never be as fluent as a native, right? Likely never have an accent of a native. But he's come far enough to be able to get into and speak into their 
hearts. Oh, and the wisdom of this, of this one proverb here, it plays out in so many levels in our lives and relationships. And this proverb helps you in so many ways especially for those of us who are married today. It helps you understand your marriage. Uh, For example, if one of you is from, shall we say, an overly expressive emotional background or environment where everybody in your family just gave it to each other, right? You just expected the other to take it. And if you married someone who is from a different, alternate emotional background, sort of more uptight, reserved, right? Another sort of four-letter word starts with an A, won't utter it from the pulpit here. But anyway, you may get that. Where no one confronted anyone, right? Everyone's just trying to please each other and keep the peace. Then both of you marry. You're going to have trouble finding the other person's lips, right? In more ways than one after a while, right? But if the one who's emotionally reserved, uptight, gets mad because the one who's expressive and direct doesn't pick up on their super subtle hints about the garbage, right, or the trash, or what they want, or it's because, hear this, they haven't aimed their words properly, right? They haven't found the lips of the other one. They're just insisting a person kisses them on the cheek. Or, by, on the other hand, if you're just used to venting your, your stuff and your feelings and, and you're surprised when your loved ones or your spouse, they just can't take it anymore, it's because it's your fault. It's your fault. You haven't learned to speak their heart language, right? You haven't found their lips. You're insisting they meet you where you are, but you haven't moved towards them. You're saying, well, gosh, that's kind of hard. That's kind of tough. Yeah, but it's more than that. It's just wise. It's just wise. So what if we all said, what if we all said in here in this church, I'm just going to learn to speak the heart language of someone from a different culture in the room. Hmm? No matter who you are in here, no matter where you come from, there's going to be someone in here from a different language, a different culture in here. So what if we all said, I'm going to commit to, and here's the Proverbs word here, understanding where someone else is coming from, right? Now, you may never never be able to speak another heart language fluently. That's okay. You may not be a native. Just learn enough. Learn enough, right? To meet someone where they are, to bring you and them together, and hear this, to eliminate the difference in rank and importance, right? Now, when I first started off doing campus ministry many years ago at UT Austin, yeah, is someone who is white and male, and by the way, made by God to be that. Thank you very much. So there's no shame in this game. As someone who was and is, because that hadn't changed, I've been both those things for as long as I can remember. (laughs) As someone who's been both those things, in the cultural moment I was and I am, I realized really early on in ministry that I had never been required to acquire these kinds of skills. And if I, if I wanted to really reach people for Jesus, I saw I had to at least learn to be minimally bicultural, right? Like any other minority culture has to do. And if you're from a minority culture in the U.S., you've, that's just been you your whole life. You've grown up being bicultural. So I never had to learn that, being from majority culture. But I wanted to become all things 
to all men that I might reach some, right? So for all of us who are here in the room and you're from U.S. majority culture, imagine what it would feel like if you moved, right, to, uh, to a different nation halfway across the world and someone that, there that you met, they didn't just ask you to speak their heart language, but someone there cared enough about you to watch your movies, right, learn your customs, your, the funny stuff about where you're from, right? Imagine if someone from the other side of the world if you move there, they just said to you, tell me about Texas. Oh, how would that feel? They asked me, pretty good, right? Love talking about Texas. Now imagine they said, tell me about Austin, Texas. It would feel even better, right? Now imagine they said, tell me about tacos in Austin, Texas, right? It's like a way of life here for us, right? I love tacos. You can have them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Now how would that feel? Oh, it would feel pretty good, wouldn't it? It'd feel like what? Like a kiss on the lips. A kiss on the lips. Why? Because you're not just asking them, or they're not asking you, how are you? They're asking, who are you? Who are you? And there's a difference. See, let's do this together, church. Not because we're Americans, but because we're Christians. Because we're Christians, and we love one another. Amen. All right. So now you're saying, okay, Morgan, I'm down for that for a bit. Uh, I'm down for trying at least to, to get going, learning the heart language of another people or a group or culture in a room. What's the best way to do that? Thanks for asking. It's number two. Find a friend. Find a friend. That's what the Proverbs tell us. Look at this. Chapter 17, verse 17. It says this. A friend loves when? At all times, yeah. And a brother is born for adversity. Now, I love this verse because it just, it's paradigm shattering here. The, the sentence actually, you can see it starts off talking about a friend and the parallel Hebraic structure of the verse suggests that it's going to say something else about a friend at the end, but the switch is there and it goes from talking about a friend to what? A brother. Why? To show you how powerful real and true friendship is. And here's why real friendship is so powerful. And why the proverb moves from friend to brother. It's this. Real friendship blurs the line between friends and family. See, you know this. A real friend, your best friends, they feel like what? Like family, right? Like your brothers and sisters. And the best family members feel like what? Like your buddies, yeah, like your, like your friends. They it may have started on one side, but they've ended up in both, right? It's beautiful. And that's why the Proverbs press you to have friends and make time for friends. But if we'll just expand our view a bit, pull in the rest of the Bible, we see it's full of great examples of this, of actually of friendships from diverse backgrounds. You've got a socioeconomic diversity there with, the, with poor David, right? Rich, wealthy, uh, Prince Jonathan in, in the book of Samuel. There's, there's young Ruth, right? There's older Naomi. There's the Jew Paul, there's the Greek, Luke, and see, this is telling you God actually shapes history through diverse friendships. Oh, it's beautiful, but what? What was the key in each of them? Well, when you read it, you can see it's this. It's Proverbs 17. They loved each other at all times, and they realized they were born for adversity. They embraced difficulty together as partners in the gospel, and they grew because of it. Now, with all that in mind, 
Let me just now lay out four ways. There are many more, but I only have time for four, if that. Uh, Four ways that you and I, that we can love at all times in a multicultural, multi-generational church. Here we go. Number one, you just have to work (laughs) at relationships. The proverb puts it like this. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Now, we don't do this today. We love to be outraged, don't we? Outrage is the enrage. It just is. That's what we do. And I love this verse, though, because it says, basically, you're just going to get offended in relationships. And by the way, if this was true in a monocultural setting, like when Proverbs was written, how much more so is it going to happen in this kind of environment? Now, I know some of you, for example, I know some of your grandparents are out there. Grandparents, when you see parents today, right, you think, what are these parents doing? right? Uh, What kind of nonsense is that? Who told him that was a good idea, right? To parent like that. And and you see the kids today, right? You say, man, what are they wearing? What kind of ridiculous fashion is that? They got, they got a piercing where? Yeah, I get it. And in therefore a multicultural church and especially in the middle of political season, you'll see on Facebook, which by the way, is usually where wisdom goes to die. The graveyard of wisdom. Thank you. You'll see posts, won't you, from people that you thought you knew. Maybe you were just in a small group with them last week, and then you see their post, and you think, what was that? I mean, did someone just hack your account? It can't be them. I could have just sworn that you sang about Jesus with your hands up on Sunday, then, then you said that? I mean, I think, man, Jesus may have your hands. Looks like something else may have your heart. Just saying right now. So what do you do? You work at it, right? If you can't overlook offenses, you'll never survive in life, in marriage, let alone in church. It's just wise to do this, Proverbs says. Which now brings me to number two, second way. It's this, choose to make a difference, not just a point. Proverbs says, he who answers before listening, that's his folly and his shame. Listen, listen. Making a point is easy. I just did it. See there, there. And actually, making a point is really fun sometimes because you can just lay the smack down on somebody, right? You can, you can write that up, and you hit send or post or whatever, and write bam on it. And with just one punch of a button, you've just alienated an uncounted amount of people from your influence. Listen, do you know what's easy? What's easy is just preaching against Hollywood, right? Against TV shows and content, against companies whose policies I disagree with and all that. But do you know what feels good? Oh, man, what feels good and what's easy is posting just a genius rebuttal to an article I didn't like and I was outraged with. But do you know what's hard? What's hard is relating to people in a way so that over time they change because of my influence. Listen, I'm not going to trade my birthright of influence for a bowl of online porridge. See what I'm saying? Not going to give up my influence, my ability to make a difference, just to prove a point with someone. Do you think, do you really, church, do you really want to be a part of a church that's got to make a point at every point about every point? So you don't want that. Think about it. We all know some environments like that. Do they feel loving? 
Do they feel welcoming? They feel affirming. Do people's lives really change there? Listen, in a multicultural, multi-generational church, not having to make a point all the time is the price you pay to make a difference over time. Now, having said all that, let me just put this one out there. Number three, it's the other side of the coin. Don't fear guilt by association. Now, we have people in this church, because I know you, you voted for every single available candidate on the ballot last Tuesday, including apparently like Galen Washington. I think that's like a thing now, right? I just saw people writing in your name. Great. We also have people here who vote in both whatever alternate political parties. And listen, I've been to their houses, had dinner with them, socialized with them, prayed with them, and encouraged them in their work on both sides. Why? Because we need Christians in politics. We need more Christians, not fewer, right? But what if, what if you saw me doing this with them, right? Or marching with this group or that group to support them and stand with them in their efforts to make the world a better place, right? What would you think? You would think this. you think, I knew it. I knew it, right? I knew he voted that way all along. He never says it. He won't say it, but I knew it. I knew it. He's gone to the dark side. See, honey? You know what? I don't care. I'm not going to fear guilt by association with that person or with you <laughs> or with you. I can march with whom I want to march with. I can pray with whom I want to pray with. I'm not on their side. I'm on Jesus' side. And he's called us to do a challenging and difficult and meaningful thing together, which is to relate well in a diverse church. Listen, I didn't choose, and neither did you, your skin color, where you were born, where you grew up. But we can choose to love our mosaic here and not fear guilt by association with one another. All right. And number four here, finally, talk about race issues with your children. Proverbs 1 here. It says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, whenever I leave my house to go to our TGA meetings, which stands for the gospel and we have TGA diversity, the gospel and diversity. It's just a small initiative we have to create space for some courageous conversations in our church with one another about difficult stuff. It's put together, put on by a brilliant, amazing team of people who love you and believe for you. And you should thank them if you know them. When I go to those meetings, I'm heading out the door. My children asked, where are you going, daddy? I say, listen. I'm going tonight to fight racism, at least in a small way. And they ask, what do you mean? I tell them, listen, our culture, it fragments, it splits over skin color. Uh, We are trying to heal in that way, just in a small way at least. That's one of the reasons, kids, we're called mosaic, right? Because we're all kinds of different people with different tones and shades through which hopefully the light of the sun can pass through, to get that metaphor. We're broken in different ways. God's gluing us together to make something more beautiful than we would be on our own. Listen. Talk with your children. Whenever you see some kind of act of violence, right, done against any kind of people group, either here in our nation or around the world, let's not be afraid to talk about it. Nothing's going to change until we do, right? Nothing's going to change. You say, well, man, aren't my kids too young to hear about that kind of stuff? No, no, no. Listen, here's my answer. Talking about race and race issues with my kids, it's been the most hopeful and concrete thing I can ever do 
to combat racism in their lifetime. I, as their father, you can see from Proverbs, I have both the responsibility and the opportunity to deeply shape their views about this issue. And secondly, if you'll do this, it will make more clear the need for the gospel in the world because they'll see people's hearts are dark and broken and wicked and we all need a savior. Oh, I love it. So they can see the sin nature at work when you point it out. Listen, but if you do this, if you do this, and I know for many of you, you already do this out of just necessity. This is a constant conversation already for you. But if you don't do this, just start doing this because if you start doing this we don't carry not we don't do it perfectly but if you'll do this you may get something amazing like what our young daughter said recently she's seven when someone that didn't look like her walked by she said mama i love dark-skinned people which of course because she's so pale means like everybody else in the world right (laughs) besides her it's just and mama got to say back with a lump in her throat me too baby Me too. See, what what was Carrie seeing there? She's seeing hope. Hope. Hope for a different future. Number one, find the lips. Number two, find a friend. But above all, number three, find food. Find some food. Look at this from Proverbs 25. It says, if your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. If you do this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord will reward you. Now, if you are at all familiar with this verse, you know that it is one in a long line of verses and teachings in the Bible that absolutely set people off about this topic. Because people will point to this verse, in specific, as a reason they hate Christianity. You say, well, how is that? I mean, it sounds nice enough. No, no, no. Take another look. Because at first it may sound like, hey, just be nice to someone who's not nice to you, right? I mean, you know, be nice to someone who pulls in a parking spot in front of you. You just wave at him and move on. No. But if you only go that far, you've missed a sucker punch of what the verse has inside it. Look at it again. It says, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. And this, this isn't just any bad guy here. This word for enemy is used for a person who hates you, who deeply wrongs or offends you. This is the word used in the Old Testament of someone who denies the rights of others. When the Persians denied the Jews their rights in their culture and were allowed to kill them. See, this is saying, you go and feed the one who's made you hungry who has taken your stuff and hurt your family. Oh, but here's the hard part. You think, man, how? How could someone do this? How could they feed another if they themselves have been impoverished? How could they give someone else something to drink if what they had had been taken away from you? You say, this is this telling me I've got to feed the one who's hurt me and made me hungry? It is. How could you do it? Oh, you would have to pay the price to feed them at your own expense. And by now, your blood's probably starting to boil a bit, which shows you're really getting what the proverb is saying. And this is why people hate this verse. I got a hard time with it, and others like it, because they're not fair, right? They're not fair. I mean, how do I feel when someone wrongs me, says stuff about me, I don't think is true or nuanced or accurate or whatever, when it feels like someone hates us, hates me? Well, I don't know about you. I feel like doing what the proverb tells me that I can't do, which is here in this next scripture. It says, don't say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. 
Well, why does this tell us that we can't do this? Oh, here's why. Because the Bible says that once, this is the worst part of evil, once evil has been done to you, once your heart hurt, once you're wounded on accident from a friend or from an enemy on purpose, if I don't turn around, if you don't turn around and begin to do good to the one who's hurt me, it begins to twist me and it turns me into the very evil that was committed against me. I mean, look what's happening in this proverb. The one who's been hurt is now wanting to hurt someone else, right? It's not fair that this happens. It's what's really awful about evil. But it is real. And my only choice now is not just to not make them pay me back. It's to love them, serve them give to them. My only choice is to pay the debt myself. Oh, every time the Bible speaks about forgiveness, it always uses economic terms. I hate that. Exactly like it does here. It always says, if you really want to be free from bitterness and pain and hurt in your relationships with people around you in your marriage, in this church, the price to pay is called forgiveness. People always object to this. They always say this is psychologically traumatizing. It is demeaning. It diminishes the pain of the one who's been hurt. But the Bible, it's just unflinching in its analysis. It says the human heart must forgive or it's turned into evil by the evil it suffered. See, it's not just true. It's just wise to forgive. Years ago, Christian writer, a woman by the name of Rebecca Pippert, wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, and she talks about a story uh, that she experienced in a class that she was auditing at Harvard University. It was a psychology class, and the professor was lecturing and giving his diagnosis about a man whose life had been ruined by the terrible relationship that he'd had with his mother. Uh, His mother was awful, it ruined his life, and now the subsequent pain and bitterness this man was feeling was twisting him and ruining his life now. And the professor got to the end of his brilliant diagnosis, but Rebecca Pippert raised her hand and said, well, listen, it's a brilliant diagnosis, but what if, what if the man wanted to forgive? How could we help him do that, right? What if a man asked his therapist to help him forgive so that his anger and bitterness didn't ruin him? And the professor said, well, I think the counselor should say, lots of luck, lots of luck. Of course, the class got a bit angry with the professor, right? They said, well, aren't we, aren't we really here to help the man, right? I mean, if this guy's bitterness, is, if it's really killing him, shouldn't we help him forgive, right? And the professor said, what are you talking about? This is science, not values, right? This is not about right and wrong. Forgiveness is about moral judgments and right and wrong. Who's to say what's right and wrong? Psychology is not about that. When you talk about forgiveness, oh, you're getting in the area of faith. And finally, he said, if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. And he's right. So where should we all look then? Right here. See, on the cross, Jesus Christ, after he had been whipped and beaten and betrayed with a kiss on the cheek, after he had been pierced with a crown of thorns after doing nothing but speaking our heart language as the ultimate outsider. After all of that, what did he say about his enemies? Oh, he said nothing to them, right? But he prayed for them. He said, not, Father, pay them back for what they're doing to me now. But, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Pay me back for what they have done. And on the cross... 
Jesus provided the ultimate food for his enemies, his body, provided the ultimate drink for the ones who had hurt him, his own blood. See, real love is costly, isn't it? Real forgiveness is awful. It's painful, hurts. And in a community like ours, why would it be any different? See, forgiveness is like a kind of a death. It's a letting go of one thing and passing to another. Real hurt, real offense, it doesn't go away without any kind of payment. Oh, but what the gospel says is that God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, has paid already your and my, our massive and infinite debt. We owe him. And we couldn't pay. And therefore, if you ask, do I really have to forgive? What you're really asking is, did Jesus really have to die? He only had to die if he wanted to forgive. And when I see him, when I see him dying for me, forgiving me, forgoing payment on the debt I owe him just for love, it humbles me. It wrecks me. I know I can't hold your words against me anymore. I can't hold your actions against me anymore. See, forgiveness, church, listen. Forgiveness is the central act of Christianity. It just is. And to do that, you gotta have something to sustain you. You need a kind of food, don't you? To feed others. It's called the bread of life. What Jesus himself called himself, right? And if we can go there over and over, look at the cross, look at Jesus, what he's done for us, we get the food we need now to feed others. D.A. Carson sums it up like this. I love this quote, and I hope maybe that we cheer a little bit for this along the way. Last thought. He said, I suspect that one of the reasons why there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because this is not an easy thing to do. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together, not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. And in light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. How can we love one another? Find someone else's lips. Learn to speak their heart language. Go into their world. And secondly, number two, make a friend over and over, someone who's not like you. Learn to understand. And number three, when you do that, you're going to need some food, aren't you? to feed your own heart and someone else. It's the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. Let's go to him now and get that. Amen.